0: Episode 122, Joel Trammell, CEO and founder of Chorus Systems, author of the new book, The Manager's Playbook. Well, I got to take
1: you back probably to the, to the first venture-backed company I did, so, so we're going back to
0: 1999 in Austin, Texas. I'm Mark Rabin. This is My Favorite Mistake. For links, show notes, and more, go to markgraven.com slash mistake122. Thanks for listening, and now on with the show. And we are joined today by Joel Trammell. He is a management educator with 30 years of CEO experience. He is CEO and founder of Chorus Systems, a business management system that empowers CEOs to lead high-performance organizations. You can learn more about him at his website, Joel Trammell.com. So before I tell you a little bit more about him, Joel, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for being here. Great to be with you, Mark. So Joel is, uh, he's got a long list of things that he does, and maybe we will hear more about that today. He is the owner of Texas CEO Magazine and currently serves as the CEO and chairman at iGraphics. Uh, Joel is more recently the author of the upcoming book titled The Manager's Playbook, make exceptional people management your competitive advantage, and that's due to be released January 2022. Right, Joel? That's great. So um, Joel is based in Austin, a city that I've lived in that was going back 20 years ago. So first question real quick. I don't know if it's a quick answer. Is it a mistake for people to move to Austin? Um, Well,
1: uh, you know, you should have got here 20 years ago. We moved here in 92. And uh, so certainly it was a very different town then. But, uh, you know, still the things that attract people. I mean, the the picture behind me uh, shows you the view, which most people that haven't been to Texas think you're in California or something. Uh, and so the terrain's interesting. The weather's good. The uh, people are great. The food's good. Uh, and other than house prices escalating 30 or 40 percent year over year, uh, things are great.
0: And the traffic.
1: Of and course the, the, and traffic. the traffic. Yeah.
0: The traffic was bad when I moved there in 1999. For one, I was really struck by the hill country and the the lakes and the rivers, and and there is a lot of natural beauty. But even then, I think the the longer term residents were saying, please, people stop moving here. But but that, that wave didn't stop.
1: Yeah, we, we, we should have built the wall. We just should have built it around Austin instead of the border, you know. <laughs> well,
0: now that I'm California, in California, I thought you were going to say to keep the Californians out. But Yes, uh, <laughs> yes. That, that's <laughs> where a lot of them have come from, for sure. Yeah. So anyway, um, you know, Austin is a, a great place. And I'm, I'm glad you can join us here, Joel. We'll, we'll talk more about your book and your other work. But as, as we usually do here, you know, thinking back at the different things that you've done, uh, what would what you say is your favorite mistake, Joel?
1: Well, I got to take you back probably to the to the first venture back company I did. So so we're going back to 1999 in Austin, Texas, when uh, you know I would wake up every morning and uh, read the uh, Monday morning section of the paper it was called Tech Monday. And so I'd read about all the tech companies that had gotten funding. at the time I'd run a small business, sold that business, and so you know starting a business was not something that was scary to me at all. Uh, but I'd never done something at a kind of a larger scale. And so uh, my wife is a four O PhD in electrical engineering from the University of Texas, had uh, been working for a company called Slumberjay here in town. And mm-hmm. they, she had become kind of an expert in network management uh, and uh, analyzing large scale networks, which at the time, there really wasn't a lot of expertise in how you ran a large network, especially from a performance perspective, which was kind of her expertise and so uh i began to believe that there was an opportunity to build a business and so we started out and 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 got in touch with some venture capitalists and we had a a product uh, what i would call a very alpha type product running on slumberjay's network and we had you know myself and uh, her and and uh we managed to raise $11 million to start a business, uh, which, you know, it was kind of crazy at the time. And looking back, you know, you'd have to be much further along to to raise that kind of money. But there was kind of a frenzy at that point in time. And so we raised $11 million. And now you got to make it work. And uh, so, uh, you know, she had the technical end of the business, you know, tied up, she knew she was the kind of the world expert in that area of the business. I felt like I knew kind of broadly how to run a business knew a little bit about everything. But certainly I thought we needed marketing help to to tell our story. And that's where my mistakes kind of start is, how do you find a good marketing person? And so I, I started out, you know, you ask some people and you try to get some, some recommendations. And the first guy I talked to that was recommended to me had written a book. And uh, it was a real book. And you know, this going back 20 something years ago, now everybody's got their book that they've published, or at least ebook they've done. But at that time, having a real book that was in bookstores was kind of a big deal, right? So I was very impressed that he had this book on marketing. And uh, so I hired him uh, to to run marketing for us. Uh, and of course, this is an early stage startup. And so there was a lot of work to, to do. Uh, but I found out that, marketing VPs sometimes don't like doing work. They like hiring people to do work. And so first thing he did, he came in and started hiring junior people. And uh, I learned that, uh, you know, that wasn't going to get the job done uh, first. And that the key part of marketing is market, that you have to actually understand the market. And we were in a very technical market of computer networking. And he you know, understood zero about the, the typical customer in that market. <laughs> and so, you know, it was pretty obvious. And so, you know, within about uh, a quarter, I had to go back and tell the board, hey, I, I hired this marketing exec. I told you how great he was. Uh, now I got to fire him. Uh, so that was marketing exec number one. Uh, so then I, I learned my lesson. I said, well, we got to have somebody who really understands the market that's the mistake I made uh, and so I went out and found somebody who'd been an analyst uh, in the market uh, so was very familiar knew you know knew the market very well uh, but he lived in Denver and so we had a very earnest conversation from the beginning that hey you're moving to Austin right you know and and because this is a startup and my wife and I are working 80 hours a week in this thing and you know we need somebody to dive in and get work done and and make it happen and he of course assured me yeah he was moving to Austin, Texas. Well, you know, first few weeks he's flying in from Denver. He's showing up at 11 or 12 on Monday morning. He's Thursday afternoon. You know, he's saying bye and getting on the airplane and going back, spending Friday, Saturday, Sunday in in Denver. You know, so of course, immediately I'm like, oh, but you're moving to Austin. Oh yeah, I'm moving to Austin. You know, and of course that went on for weeks, which turned into months and turned into me having to go to the board and tell them that the second marketing VP that I hired was not the right
0: guy. (laughs) So so just to to jump in real quick, I mean, so I'm sure you were talking to VP number two, was he he just kicking the can down the road of like, no, Joel, I'm working on it, I'm working on it, but didn't seem like it? Yeah, I mean, he was, you know, he wasn't,
1: it was a startup, right? He wasn't sure it was going to be successful. Mm -hmm. He wanted Mm -hmm. to you know, the maybe have more proof points or before he made a commitment, you know, see that things were going to, you know, knock it out of the park, whatever. Um, and of course, with every startup, things, you know, don't happen as quickly as you'd like. And so he just wasn't kind of really willing to jump in and sell the house in Denver and make the move to Austin and and uh, make that kind of commitment.
0: Yeah, because I mean, sometimes people are in a position where, they could get an apartment, or you know, be in a hotel to be there from Monday morning to Friday afternoon. But not, you know, people don't aren't always in the circumstances because of family or finances to to, to take that plunge. So it sounds like you know maybe that candidate that that executive was it was that their first time with the startup. I wonder or.
1: That was their first mm-hmm. time in an, a real executive role, and mm-hmm. I, I think they didn't understand that. You know, I mean, it was hard to ask the team to work sixty hours a week when they were checking in Monday at noon and, and leaving Thursday, and you know, and in those days we, you know, remote work was much harder, and we didn't have Zoom and everything to, you know, so people were kind of out of touch when they were out of the office, and it just culturally didn't send the right message, uh, and as well as just obvious, his buy-in was just not at the same level as the rest of the team mm mm-hmm.
0: so how to go the third time
1: was third time the charm third time was the charm uh i found somebody that was from austin that was out of the industry uh they uh actually uh i actually proposed to the board that uh they could be ceo they had they were pretty senior executive who had a lot of experience and went to the board and said hey i've got this guy but he's kind of interested in the ceo role the board said no we, we're not interested in him as ceo but if he wants to come in and as kind of an executive VP and run sales and marketing. You know that's okay, and so uh, that's the deal we struck. And uh, he he was able to to you know stay with the company for a period of years and and uh, and, and well into our very successful run uh, that we had with the organization. And so that worked. But uh, it took me three tries to to get a, a marketing VP and uh, and a couple of tries to get a sales VP as well. But that's probably a story for a different day.
0: Yeah. Yeah, well, I'll tell you, I mean, I worked for, I I joined a startup in Austin in, we'll call it the beginning of 2001. Uh, Venture backed. They had also raised like 10 or 11 million in the first round. Um, And like you said, very early stage. And marketing and sales was the biggest department of turnover, area of turnover. A couple of different VPs couple of different sales VPs, lots of sales people. Um, so, you know, I'm curious like what you were able to do as as you were into other companies to, you know, avoid the best you can um, hiring mistakes or trying to reduce the churn.
1: Yeah, so, you know, hiring for a startup particularly is, is the hardest thing, especially in those days. You know, I had no reputation. It's a little easier for me today Say, you know, point to successes and say, "Don't you want to learn from somebody who's you know been there and done that?" But you know, I was a 35 year old kid basically who who had you know uh, just raised 11 million dollars, but that was about the only credential I had to my name at that point. And uh, so it's very tough. And and you know, I think most of the time startups hire too many executives and not enough uh, you know Indians, as the famous phrase, "Too many chiefs, not enough Indians." Uh, and and that you need you need to hire people at the right stage, and then the challenge you run into is a lot of those people. Some of those people may be able to grow into bigger roles as the company gets bigger, but some of those people don't. And and you got to be careful you don't hire somebody to to a VP position when they're really a individual contributor or maybe first level manager in their skill set and ability at that point in time. And and so yeah, so hiring at the, at the early stage is is very difficult. But I think you know stay away from hiring high level execs more than, you know, one, you only need one or two of those <laughs> until you're at 50 or 60 or something. And really, you know, you, you you get traction and you get product market fit and you think then you're really building a company. Okay. Then you can bring some, some more of those people mm-hmm. in, but you don't need a lot of those people in the early days.
0: Yeah. So it sounds like there was a, a reflection around hiring an executive versus somebody to roll up their sleeves and do the marketing.
1: Exactly. Exactly. And that's what you need in the in the early days of the company is somebody who's going to get in and, and do the work. And a lot of people think they can do that. But, you know, once you've reached a point in your career where you've spent most of your time managing, uh, you know, often that's very hard to get people to return to that.
0: And so with the, you know, the 30 years of CEO experience, you um, there there you know, there are a lot of lessons that that you've shared, you know a previous book and things that you talk about. I mean can can you tell us a little bit more generally? are are there mistake, what are some of the mistakes that CEOs make, maybe not just in hiring but in evaluating the performance of the executives on their team?
1: Yeah, I think there's a you know concept that uh, people often think to be a manager, to be a coach, to be a leader of a group of people, you have to know more about how they do their job than they do. You have to be the expert, because that's how most people get into management. You're, you're very good as an individual contributor, and then somebody makes you a manager, and you're hiring, and you're managing junior people who you can, you know, instruct in how to do the job. And that's true through most of the roles in an organization, until you get to this role of CEO, where it is impossible To be the expert, Uh, I tell people I would be. I'm unqualified to be the executive VP of any functional area of the business, even though I think I'm a pretty good CEO. And they say, "Well, wait a minute, how does that work?" And you know, one of the analogies I use is the NFL. uh, Often ask my the question in training of what position did Bill Belichick, arguably the greatest (laughs) coach in NFL history, play in the NFL? And and a few people often. Go wait a minute. I don't think Bill Belichick played in the NFL, and that's the correct answer. He didn't. How can you be the greatest coach in the history of the NFL if you never played? Because the co- head coach role is very much like a CEO role. You you want to be what I call an expert generalist in that role. You need to know a little bit about everything, but you but you can't be an expert in any of the in in any more than maybe one of the areas, right? Because you're going to have somebody working for you who spent their whole career being a salesperson and a sales manager and a sales executive they're obviously they're going to know more about sales so then you have to think about how do i guide somebody that's in that role and and so that you know that comes down to setting very clear objectives having clear conversations making sure that their view of their job aligns with your vision for where the organization is going that their vision of how they do their job integrates with the other departments and works cohesively uh, just like a football plan, you you can have an offensive plan, you have a defensive plan, but it's a lot better if those work together, <laughs> uh, and, and fit the type of player you can recruit into your organization. And so, those are the kind of things that the CEOs dealing with. Uh, yeah, you're not going to be able to tell them exactly how to close this deal or that deal, and you got to be comfortable with that uh, by setting very clear objectives, though, and then you provide accountability by. Uh, judging those objectives against what I call objective reality. People use the word accountability. I don't think they often people when they use that word just mean they want to fire somebody. I tell people substitute accountability, substitute the word objective reality. Your job is to provide objective reality uh, to, to all your execs and say, you know, just like when Tom Brady throws a pass 10 yards over the receiver's head, you know, the natural human inclinations to say, well, that wasn't my fault. You know, the receiver ran the wrong route or he slipped or or the offensive lineman didn't block and the defender was in my face. And the coach's job is to provide objective reality and say, no, Tom, you overthrew him. You mm-hmm. threw a bad yeah. pass <laughs> or you made the wrong read or whatever the case yeah. may be. And so that's what you're trying to provide to your executive team.
0: I mean, it's interesting to think about Belichick for a minute. Um, he has this reputation now. He will be going to the Hall of Fame. You know, some Absolutely. would call him the greatest coach ever. In his first stint as a coach in the Cleveland Browns, my grandmother was still alive then. Northeastern Ohio would go on and on. She thought Bill Belichick was terrible. Right. He was playing the wrong quarterback and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and so then he gets the job with the Patriots and Drew Bledsoe gets hurt. He ends up with Tom Brady and what seems like a stroke of genius and years of genius. You know there's this debate now that Tom Brady's in Tampa Bay. Right. How good is Belichick without Brady? So the, the question I wanted to throw to you Joel is, you know, if let's say you've got a CEO and um, a sales VP or a chief revenue officer who's been joined at the hip with the CEO, the company's doing great, growing for five or six or 10 years. And then the sales VP leaves. Does that sometimes expose the CEO or raise questions of, well, for what it's worth, who gets credit for the success?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, you know, ultimately the CEO is responsible for the team he puts on the field. And so, you know, just like deciding on going with Brady, a sixth round draft pick who you know, nobody else wanted (laughs) because they could have had him much earlier. He was at least smart enough to pick him, right? Uh, And and then chose to go with him over a more experienced quarterback as as soon as he showed promise. So you give the CEO credit for that uh, because, uh, you know, if he got the wrong quarterback, it was his fault as well. And so I think the same thing's true with uh, CEOs. Uh, You know, your executive team is absolutely critical, not just sales, but the whole executive team. But you're responsible for making it work and if you you don't have the right people you you know so many CEOs are very slow to move when they don't have the right executive in place and and I think that's critical uh, because you ultimately you're going to be judged on their performance and so if they're not the right guy you you've you've got to move pretty quickly on those things
0: yeah um, so I've got some other questions for you about your experiences as, as CEO. But I, I do have to ask, you know, how do you end up CEO of two companies at the same time? You know, Elon <laughs> Musk is maybe, and maybe he's your neighbor now, but he's the, the most famous example these days, I think, of being CEO at Tesla and SpaceX. Um, Steve Jobs, I think, at one point was pulling that off between the company he, I'm blanking out, the company he had Next, been with before. Yeah, Next Computers and Apple. Right. When they brought him back. But how, how did you end up in that situation, Joel? How do you manage that?
1: Yeah, so um, you know, the, the, as you get older and get you know, and in, in, in the, on the investing side, often you you and board side, you often end up in CEO roles not through planning but through happenstance. So my last two CEO roles have been uh, because I was standing in the at the right place or the wrong place at the at the right time. I'm not sure which. Uh, so I you know, I was CEO of a, a public company called Black Box, and and there that happened because I was on the board. Uh, the company was struggling. And so the board comes to a decision to fire the CEO, but the company's struggling. And it's hard to find, uh, you know, how are you going to find a CEO when the company owes the bank $165 million and you've got turnover and all these issues. And so, you know, you look around the boardroom and I was the only guy not collecting social security on the board. So I got volum told that that was the, you know, that I could take it over. Right. Um, you know, and then uh, most recently, uh, iGraphics, I, uh, Took over and I've now now left that position. We we actually sold the company recent very recently, but but uh, I took over that company because my private equity firm that uh, uh, that I ran and and sat on the board of iGraphics. The, the 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 CEO there decided to leave, told us he was leaving, and we were kind of in the midst of this transaction process. We we thought we were going to sell the the business, and so again, bringing in a new CEO didn't make a lot of sense at that point in time. So I kind of jumped in and pinch hit for six months to. Get the company through a transaction so uh, yeah sometimes you find yourself in in these roles and you kind of got to do double duty
0: <laughs> hmm. so and, and i graphics I back in the day in my engineering days I used to use that software so that name, sure. yeah. I looked at the website and you know it yeah. said celebrating 30 years and I think well I was probably using the software 20 years ago maybe when I was working in Austin absolutely
1: yeah yeah business they've been in the business process management space for a long time.
0: Um, You know, so Joel, I wanted to ask, you know, thinking of your different CEO roles, you know, here on the podcast, the theme is, you know, learning from mistakes, not repeating mistakes, being open about mistakes. You know, what are your thoughts about, you know, creating a culture, your role of creating a culture where people are learning from mistakes?
1: Yeah, I I think the two most powerful phrases that CEOs need to use is, I don't know, and I made a mistake. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, and too many CEOs, uh, you could spend a year with them and they'd never other either one of those phrases. And, uh, and that's a challenge, right? Uh, cause it's really hard, uh, to believe people cause none of us are right all the time. I mean, I used to try to tell my little, my kids when they were little that I knew, you know, daddy knows everything. And they believed that to about six years old, you know, <laughs> and then, the, then they started going, well, Google it, daddy. I don't believe you, you know? Uh, and so, uh, you know, that doesn't work. But a lot of CEOs think they have to have all the answers and they are just unwilling to utter those words. I don't know. And then when they make a decision, uh, they they stick with it and they, they're they stubborn about it and they're unwilling to reconsider, even though evidence has come about that shows you're wrong. And so they're not willing to say, hey, I, you know, I missed that one. We're going to change direction. And so those are the two most powerful phrases, because I wanted everybody in my organization to consider me, the two words I want people to use to describe me were authentic and transparent. And you can't be authentic and transparent if you're covering up your mistakes and if you're acting like you know everything when you know you don't.
0: Wow. So that's uh yeah, thank you. I mean that that's 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 powerful. And you know, I think we all wish we worked in a, a company where that was the case. You know, I'm fortunate. You know, uh, one software I'm in, company I'm involved with right now, I'm, I'm wearing their hat. Uh, KyneXus has uh, a CEO who believes and lives what you were saying there, Joel. He's not afraid to say I don't know. Uh, he doesn't try to micromanage. I've heard a very similar thing from him about um, you know he he's not expert in any of the disciplines or the functions as that company has grown um, to to thirty people. He's he's got the humility to hire experts and you know, he had a good mentor who had stepped in as an interim CEO for the purpose of coaching him because oh, you know, okay. he, yeah. he was a first time entrepreneur. Sure. Sure. And um, but I think that humility and that openness and creating a culture, you know, the, just the other thing I'll say about Kinexus is you know, a culture of not jumping to blame and punish people when a simple mistake is made because when you do that it seems like you just drive people into hiding or covering up their mistakes which isn't good right
1: right absolutely yeah there's you know there's a great story uh, in the book uh, American Icon about Ford and how Alan Mahali over uh, you know turned around Ford and without taking government money and and uh you know he goes into the to the executive meeting each week and you know he asks people to write their projects, you know kind of red yellow green and the first week he goes in everybody around the whole boardroom's green and Ford's going to lose three and a half billion dollars in that (laughs) quarter alone. (laughs) Yeah. You know, and his response is, boy, that's interesting, you know, and uh, until he broke through and it took, you know, several weeks before somebody finally threw up a, a yellow and mentioned that they had a problem and his first words out of his mouth were, thank you, now we have something to work with. And so that's what I coach CEOs is anytime somebody brings a problem to you, the first words out of your mouth need to be thank you thank you for letting me know that we had a problem. Now let's talk about how we're going to solve it and who's, who's going to go solve it. But uh, if you build that into your culture that, that you thank people for bringing you problems, you'll find they start bringing you more and more problems. And they bring you problems when they're little problems, small fires, instead of after they've blown up and there's really no right. way to, to, to solve the problem.
0: Yeah, it's better to be told we're behind schedule Earlier, when there's a chance to adjust and get back on schedule, until waiting until uh, it's late. I told you it was on schedule, but now, oops, that's, that's right. going a ship, right?
1: That's right, exactly.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, I've heard that Malali story. I believe, I'm pretty certain that the first executive to report yellow was Mark Fields, who then I believe ended up replacing Malali right. as yep. CEO. Yep. So, exactly, um, yeah. and ended up in Malali's good graces for doing that. Yeah. And of course, everybody
1: else was looking around the boardroom thinking there was an ejector button that Mojoly was about to push, <laughs> you know, because <laughs> the culture was so toxic that you just didn't mm-hmm. bring problems up. And that's how you get in a situation where you're losing three and a half billion dollars.
0: Yeah. Well, and, you know, Malali was brought in, of course, from Boeing. And, you know, so, you know, question, question for you, Joel, I mean, generally speaking, what, when, when do you have to bring in an outsider to have a chance to shake up a culture?
1: Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And the whole question of how to hire CEOs is, is not, well, not been that well explored, in my opinion. Most boards don't do it very often, so not a lot of expertise around doing it. But I think, you know, in general, uh, I would love to have somebody in from internal take over. Uh, and part of a good CEO job is preparing a transition plan. Uh, And always having that in place because, you know, the proverbial bus can hit anybody. Anything can happen. They can get a better offer. They can have a health issue, whatever. Uh, So that, you know, that's a a key board responsibility is there always should be discussions about is there anyone internally? What do we need to do to make the internal candidates more qualified so that they'd be in a better position? Um, So, you know, I I much prefer doing internal because I know something. Uh, but a lot of times uh, companies, especially the ones that aren't well run, get into trouble and there is no person uh, because the CEO has not prepared transition and the CEO was not very transparent in the way they ran the business. And so nobody kind of knows none of the internal people really have seen much of the business. Um, and and that that's when you got to go outside. And then certainly there are times when you, you know, you. The events happen and you just need to change the culture. You need to change, you know, you're, you're you're needing to push a change, a significant change in the organization. And that's much more easily done from the outside than from the inside, because it's very hard for an inside candidate to come in and, you know, try to, you ask them, you know, they need to fire half the executive team or something that, that that's very difficult because these were their peers and, and that, culturally that's very hard um, to, to gain that credibility and do that quickly. So, You know, it's kind of a general rule. If things are going well, I'd love to much prefer an inside candidate. If things are not going well, then I'm going to probably look more outside.
0: So um, one other question I want to ask this is sort of going back to to hiring, whether it's um, hiring other executives or or team members for for a startup. Um, You're you're in Austin and you made reference to the phrase of, you know, keep Austin weird. (laughs) Well, a lot of times companies might not want to be weird, or there there's this phrase that's used, you know, they hire for fit. And does that exclude people? Is it a mistake to maybe keep out those who are weird or different who are quote unquote, not a fit? What, what's your experience with this? Yeah. You, you
1: have to be um, careful about what that means, what fit means. Um, And if you build a very strong culture and we, you know, we can stay with the bill Belichick analogy here. So, you know, new England Patriots, very famous for taking players that fail on other teams that are the problem child, you know, or whatever, a troublemaker, whatever. And, you know, new England brings them into their organization and they perform wonderfully. They, you know, become an all pro they win super bowls, whatever. Uh, and, and the, the reason that happens is because if you have a very strong culture, your culture impacts the person. If you have a weak culture, then these misfits impact your culture. <laughs> and so you want to have a very strong culture, which allows you to hire a lot wider array of people because you're going to influence them. Your strong culture is going to impact them more than their, you know, uh, maybe uh, lack of fit is going to impact you. Uh, and, and, you know, the tendency of course for all of us is to hire people that are like ourselves and that's, you know, that can be ethnically, that can be personality wise. I mean, that's what I probably see in tech the most is the personality. Uh, a lot of us in tech are very, you know, uh, tech entrepreneurs, very driven, uh, very direct, uh, kind of people, a type personalities. And, and so they tend to hire other a type personalities and it's not a case of, uh, they don't want diversity, they just don't understand. They think that's the reason they're successful is because of their personality. So they everybody that's successful has their personality, and that's just a you know misnomer. Uh, and it takes, you know, kind of all types of personalities to make the world grow around. And as you grow an organization, you're gonna have to learn to deal with all types of personalities. So we spend a lot of time in our training talking about language to describe people so that you can even have this conversation about how to include all different personality types and that somebody that may be perceived to push back in your organization. There may just be somebody who's more risk averse than you are. And you're very risk tolerant. And you just need to understand they're going to need a week to get to that new idea. And you got to it in five minutes and we're willing to change the whole direction of the company. Some people aren't going to be comfortable with that. And if you know that ahead of time, though, you can give them a heads up a week ahead. Hey, we're going to go talk about this. Give them time to process and get there. And, uh, you know, they can be just as productive as anybody else.
0: Back to Bill Belichick again. I forget if these were his comments somehow. That's how I'm remembering it. But there's the idea of putting 11 Tom Brady's on the field would not be a winning football team. (laughs) (laughs) Because you need clearly like fit for uh, a left tackle versus a running back. Tom Brady's not going to play either of those positions well, even though you might want players who have some of the characteristics or traits of Tom Brady. Or somebody who can fit into a system seems to be important in business as well.
1: Yeah, and and I mean, just different roles, right? I mean, a customer support person by nature needs to be much more people-centric. A uh, developer needs to be much more thing-centric, right? I mean, they're going to be, um, and and that's just natural personality traits, uh, but to build a successful and balanced organization, you need all of those. And if you hire just a bunch of developers and, you know, they have to do customer support, that doesn't work very well, you know. But but that's what you see in a lot of tech companies. You see, you know, I mean, the one I've dealt with, you know, has like 30 engineers and three other people. And I'm like, hey, guys, you know, we might want to get some other types in here to kind of balance this out because our customers, you know, are going to be are not going to all be engineers. Or the people that are doing support need to be different. The HR people need to be different. The accounting people maybe need to be different. Uh, and so understanding that, uh, how you're different, how you're unique, and then therefore what other types you need is very important.
0: Well, I think that's great advice, Joel. And uh, again, our guest is Joel Trammell. Um, he is, uh, he's got a new book coming out as uh, they say in Texas, this is not his first rodeo as an author. He's got a previous book from 2014, The CEO Tightrope, How to Master the Balancing Act of a Successful CEO. And the new book, it sounds like um, a, a broader focus. It's called The Manager's Playbook, Make Exceptional People, Management, Your Competitive Advantage. Um, so it's not making, it, there's, there's a line break there that I didn't read well. It's not make <laughs> exceptional people. It's make Exceptional people management. Yes, your competitive advantage. Who um, I mean, is the audience for this book? Managers at all levels, including a CEO.
1: Yeah, yes, there is absolutely you know a management role uh, you know all the way up, including the CEO, that I think has been uh, neglected in many organizations. Viewed as not important. Uh, a lot of the business literature really focuses on leadership, which is one component I would say of the management role but it's not the only component. We talk about three distinct components. We talk about management, which is making decisions about those things you control because of your position. We talk about leadership, influencing others to willingly follow. And then we talk about coaching, continuous process of making your team better. And uh, all three of those tools need to be engaged to be successful. And so that's what we talk about in the manager's playbook is you got to be careful. A lot of people only use one or more. They get into a management role and they think, wow, I get to make all the decisions now. And they just make decisions. Then they wonder why nobody's following them and nobody's getting any better. uh, You know, and uh, and then some people are very leadership oriented and everybody likes them, is excited, but they don't make good decisions. And nobody knows where we're going and uh, it it, it doesn't work as well. And so we believe you need kind of be able to apply all three of those tools to be a successful uh, manager in an organization.
0: So, um, is the management piece the one that you think is most often missing? Is that why the focus on this book? Or
1: yeah, it 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 is missing or overused. It it oftens either um, neglected. People just say, "I'm gonna," you know, "I don't, I don't." I run by consensus is kind of a common approach these days, right? I I don't make these decisions. We we build a consensus, which to me is just the stupidest thing in the world, you know. Like the quarterback going into the huddle and saying, "Okay, well, let's figure out what play. Who, who wants <laughs> offensive lineman? What play do you want to run? Okay, wide receiver. Well, I mean, they don't have the view. You know, they're not the the the, the general on the field. They don't have the view of the whole situation. Well, and, and, so, and, and that, that that takes time. The
0: play clock would expire, and now you <laughs> yes, a delay yeah. penalty.
1: <laughs> yes, exactly. And so you know, somebody with a view of the overall field calls the play, and then mm-hmm. everybody executes accordingly. And and then the other thing I see, kind of the the inverse of that is the person who gets made a manager and thinks, oh, yes, now I get to make all the decisions. But that's all I have to do is make a decision. And everybody's just going to eagerly follow my direction. And uh, if you've had any experience in managing people, you know that that doesn't happen. Uh, they, uh, uh, they they often will do what you ask them to do, but with you know far less enthusiasm than you need. And most of us managing people in knowledge worker categories, we need not just their physical engagement, but we need their mental and creative engagement. And the only way you get that is, is through, you know, exercising good leadership.
0: Well, Joel, you've, you've shared a lot of really great insights and, and, and thought-provoking ideas here today. So I, 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 I trust the book will be full of those as well. So I'll look forward to seeing the book when it comes out. And I hope people will go check it out. Again, the Manager's Playbook, Make Exceptional People Management Your Competitive Advantage. I think I said it a little better that time. Yeah, I think you got it right. <laughs> I, I put people management on the same line this time. <laughs> try, to, try, try to avoid repeating that little mistake. But um, again, our guest has been Joel Trammell. Uh, Joel, you seem like a really busy guy. So thank you for uh, making the time to be a guest here today. Great to be with you, Mark. Well, thanks again to Joel for being our guest today. For a link to buy his book and more information about Joel and his work, you can go to com slash mistake122. As always, I want to thank you for listening. I hope this podcast inspires you to reflect on your own mistakes, how you can learn from them or turn them into a positive. I've had listeners tell me they started being more open and honest about mistakes in their work. And they're trying to create a workplace culture where it's safe to speak up about problems because that leads to more improvement and better business results. If you have feedback or a story to share, you can email me, myfavoritemistakepodcast at gmail.com. And again, our website is myfavoritemistakepodcast.com.